Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. Of course, you know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane, and we are now fully into the 2024 season. The 66th running of the Great American Race has come and gone, albeit a day late and not a dollar short, uh, after 48 straight hours of rain. I still think that I'm trying to dry my socks and my shoes and my entire being. Uh, soak the Daytona Beach area, but on to the positives. We got the race in, a great race at that, and William Byron is the 2024 Daytona 500 champion. And the guy who finished second, we have his crew chief on this week as a guest. It is Blake Harris of Hendrick Motorsports. Now, full transparency, this interview was recorded before Daytona weekend, so we chatted a little bit about qualifying, which... Obviously, is about a week or so old at this point, but there's a lot of topical things as it pertains to the 2024 season. And I also think that some of the conversation we had leading into Daytona still applies to the 48 team's mindset heading into Atlanta this weekend and, frankly, the rest of the 2024 season. But let's take care of some business here off the top, and that is paying homage to a NASCAR legend of days gone by. And then we do that with our Wayback segment this week as Papa Siegel will pay homage to a late, great NASCAR driver. Papa? Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 214. The whole season is ahead of us, but today we look back at a NASCAR great we lost during the offseason. I've mentioned Cale Yarborough a bunch of times, and I've even devoted a prior segment to Leroy Yarborough, no relation to Cale, but is it possible that I failed to focus the Wayback Lens on one of the greatest drivers in NASCAR history? Guilty as charged, I guess. So let's fix that right now. William Caleb Yarbrough hailed from Timmonsville, South Carolina, and was drawn to auto racing after sneaking into Darlington as a kid to watch his first race in 1951. He caught his first break by landing the Wood Brothers' iconic 21 ride in 1966, he would run a total of 560 Cup Series races over 31 years, winning 83 times for the Woods and Junior Johnson, among others, including four Daytona 500s and five Southern 500s. In 1979, it was Kale who was battling Donnie Allison for the Daytona 500 win when they wrecked on the backstretch and put NASCAR on the national sports map when he and the Allison brothers got into a fight on national TV while Richard Petty came around to take the checkered flag. Yarborough won the Cup Series championship three years in a row from 1976 through 1978, a feat which I think has only been equaled by Jimmy Johnson. He still holds the record for most polls won in a season, 14, which he did in 1980. Yarborough also raced the Indy 500 four times, 
and he was a regular in the International Race of Champions, which he won in 1984. Yarbrough was known for his toughness as much as his skill behind the wheel. I think he must have been a cat in a prior life. Consider, he survived a skydiving accident when his parachute failed to open at 5,000 feet. He was struck by lightning and bit by a rattlesnake as a kid and survived. And if that wasn't enough, you probably have seen old black and white footage of Cale Yarbrough crashing through a Darlington retaining wall and landing outside the track. He walked away unscathed. I loved Cale for his hard-charging racing style, but also because of his open antipathy towards Daryl Waltrip. It was Yarbrough who coined Waltrip's nickname of Jaws in 1977. Cale Yarbrough, the Timminsville Flash, passed away this past New Year's Eve at the age of 84. He's included on NASCAR's lists of its top 50 and top 75 drivers of all time, and he was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2012. He was one of the best ever. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. Yes, thank you, Dad. The late, great Kale Yarbrough. The Timminsville Flash, as I learned. Um, very, very legendary driver in so, so many ways. And it was unfortunate that we lost him on the first day of the year, no less, January 1st. But a legacy that will live on long past Kale's time. So many cool stories, so many cool anecdotes from his life and his career. All right, let's start off this episode as we always do. And that, of course, my friends, is with a good old-fashioned <laughs> And throw it straight over to my interview with Blake Harris, crew chief of the 48 Hendrick Motorsports Ally Chevrolet at Hendrick Motorsports. Again, we sprayed a lot of fields. Again, we sprayed a lot of fields specifically ahead of the 2024 season, the outlook of the 48 team. They had a really good start to the season last year. Alex Bowman gets hurt. Mojo's gone. Missed the playoffs. We know how that season ended. This season, a healthy Alex Bowman. A second year working with our guest, Blake Harris. Need to get a win early. Why he thinks that's so important, he will tell you in this chat. Plus, Blake was a racer himself, and I would say still is, because he never really get that bug out of you. But I did some research. I did some intel. And uh, we reminisced on some days gone by of Blake behind the driver's seat at the racetrack, his time at Furniture Row Racing. And if you guys didn't know, he is married to NASCAR on Fox's Caitlin Vinci. They got two kids and they are absolutely adorable. How did they first meet at the racetrack back in the day? He'll bring you back through that story and so much more. So I'll get out the way. And here is my chat with crew chief of Hendrick Motorsports, Blake Harris. Pleasure to welcome on to the show this week, the crew chief of the 48 Hendrick Motorsports Chevrolet in the NASCAR Cup Series. He has had his Zoom update that is done, the competition meeting that is done, the new Charger, it has been acquired. Blake Harris, you are rip rock ready to go, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, we're ready to roll. We got a little little work left to do here in the 48 car, but mm -hmm. we're getting close. We got to get Sang on the truck by Monday night, so... Guys are down there working hard right now and getting the last uh, final details put on it here before the weekend. So what are the vibes like right now at the shop? Obviously, we got the race in in L.A., which is good because I'm sure that you and a lot of other people 
thought that that was a bleak possibility going into the weekend. And now we're heading into Daytona, a fresh, clean slate of paper for a lot of people, you and Alex included. Are you feeling good about the season ahead? Yeah, I just I want to start with going back to that. How about hats off to NASCAR and everyone involved, our TV partners and teams, and just to pull that off and, and kind of unprecedented for us to move an event up like that. I know um, it certainly, you know, wasn't great for, for some of the fans and stuff that couldn't make it, but I mean, I don't, there's still no way just looking at the weather, how it all shook out that we, we would have been able to do anything. So um, there's a lot of excited guys around here that, that were glad that we were able to still put on the show and, and get all that in. And, you know, for us, we, we had a decent day down there. So um, certainly you know, on paper, it looks better than it felt when he started fourth and finished sixth and had a lot of kind of banging around in between, didn't make a whole lot of noise, but, um, you know, it, it was a decent solid run and, you know, kind of backed up a, a relatively competitive run we had last year. So, you know, from that stance, super excited to get down to Daytona, um, a lot of energy around here. You know, you, this is my second time as far as going through the Daytona prep here at HMS and, um, just, you know, swung through the engine shop day and saw some of those guys and just everybody's pumped to get it going. And, and we are too. Definitely, definitely looking forward to the clean slate, um, as you mentioned with, with Alex and I, and, you know, we got off on a really good foot last year and, and, and expect the same this year, really. I mean, we've, it aligns with some of his really good tracks statistic, statistically too, and in, in places that our company has had a lot of success. So no better place to do that than to go down and try to sit on the front row again in Daytona. I think Alex said, I think it was with us on Sirius, that he kind of looked back on 2023 in two distinct different parts, pre-injury and post-injury. Because, you know, whether he'll say it, you'll say it or not, it's kind of clear that he was not 100% healthy once he came back from that back injury. Do you kind of look at it the same way? Like there was a season you guys had before he got hurt, and then there was a season he had after. Yeah, I mean the, the momentum for sure, right? I mean I, that was a it was a huge, definitely distinct difference season as you mentioned. I don't, you know, I think there there are a lot of races in the second half where where we had speed at times and and put ourselves in position to get good finishes or have good runs, and you know something would happen or you know we wouldn't execute the full race and and I don't, you know. Although our second half of the season was was not what we wanted, or the you know once he came back and and whether he was a hundred percent or feeling hundred percent, you know I, I don't know. I think from the time he came back to the time of the end, like the evolution of how he felt after races and all those things, he certainly was getting better. Um, but you know, as long as he's healthy and he can drive the car to that extent, to me, you know that it only matters to the extent like we still have what we have in front of us, us each week, right? And even when he came back and. Um, we, we had challenges like it, it was our responsibility to go compete at, at the best level that we could. And, you know, now that that's behind us, um, he's got a lot of a lot of time he had through the winter to, to kind of you know get back in, into the shape that he wants to be in. And um, we are really looking forward to that. I mean, he was um, giving him a little bit better car in, in L.A., but I mean, he was, you know, he's up on the wheel and, and getting after it and right in the middle of all that stuff. So, um yeah, no, no waste of time. I think that's my point to that question. You know, I, we had a, a rough patch when he came back, but at the end of the day, there wasn't a weekend that we left that we didn't feel like we learned something or, you know, if we were going a direction on setup that we can, can't cross something off, it doesn't always go the way that you want. As long as uh, we learn something from when we come back, we'll, we'll come back with a better plan. I know it's way easier said than done, obviously, but how do you guys get off to a start like you had last year this year because to your point momentum is so important and it's a tangible thing 
in a lot of cases. It certainly was for you guys last year. Besides winning another poll or sitting on another front row for Daytona and knocking off a handful of top tens, how do you guys go about doing that and replicating the success you had? I think we we just got to get out there early on and, and get a get a stamp on it with a win, right? Like uh, short of a win at the beginning of last year, I don't know how you could have scripted it any better. Like we got the lead in points, you know. I think somewhere there, right after we got the lead, there was a rain out for qualifying. We got the pole from that, and you know all that stuff just kind of snow snowballs with uh, you know any energy that you have comes statistically too, right? Like rain out and you get the pole in the first pit stall, like the day's going to go easier and going to go better. And that that's not just by chance. That's by something that you've done up to that point. So for me, I, I think it's important, you know, for the year that we had last year and, and for Alex and for the team, we need to go out, execute, get a win early. And, and I think that'll, you know, put that on the back of everyone's minds and we can just go back to racing every week, you know, the way that we know how. And, and you know, we again had cars and, and races where we were capable of competing for the win or, you know, being right there in the mix at the end. And so we don't have to change, you know, we don't have to drastically change uh, uh, the way that we prep or the way that we race. And and I know that, you know, the team and, and Alex are, are super capable of, of doing what we need to do to go to win. So that's what we need to do. That's my mind. I uh, out of the box. If we get the opportunity early on, you know, whether there's some risks we got to take or whatever calls we got to make, we're, we're definitely going hard after a win here early. I can see it now. Alex pulls into victory lane, microphone stuck in front of his face, and he looks at the camera and he says, oh, I guess I backed into that one, huh? What a hack. I can totally see it. You know I can. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 It's coming. Yeah. Um, so speaking of change, or maybe lack thereof, being a Chevy team, you guys are the only OEM coming into this year that does not have a new body and, and have a new, I guess, model. Ford has the Dark Horse. Toyota has the new Camry XSE. You guys are sticking with the tried and true. It obviously worked pretty well for you guys as an organization and as a manufacturer last year. But the fact that you guys don't have something bright, shiny, and new, does that give you any pause, or do you think it's much ado about nothing? I mean, yeah, you, you don't know what you don't know. Um, I don't I don't have any better idea of how we'll go down to Daytona and stack up drag-wise versus other manufacturers any better than I did last year. I mean, you know, we we could probably laugh about it now, but like we went into Daytona last year, not sure where we would shake out. And as some of those Chevys went at the beginning of qualifying, we were like, oh man, it's not looking great for Chevys this year, you know? And we were able to go qualify one, two, three, or one, two, four, whatever it was, and sit on the pole, you know, by a decent amount. And, but you don't know until they stack up. So I'm not, uh, I'm not super concerned. Uh, you know, I feel good that we had a season on all of these packages you know with the exception of short tracks so super speedway intermediate style racing we've got a lot of notes and, and some comfort in knowing where our balances need to be for those races and you know hopefully we can use that to our advantage i mean you you know typically those guys come out any manufacturer comes out with a, a body a new new body there's there's some type of evolution process over the course of the season so hopefully we can hit the ground running and take advantage of what we have and what we know uh, versus maybe those guys having to fill it out a little bit but you know as far as being nervous or, or how we stack up for all those things it's uh we're prepping for a race we're gonna put everything in we got and, and we'll go down there and see how it shakes out the stats that you personally achieved last year but that alex has achieved and hendrick motorsports have when it comes to daytona 500 qualifying are honestly just kind of funny at this point. Like, it's it's laughable how good you guys have been. Alex has a front row start the last six years. You guys are going for seven 
and obviously the second in a row with you atop the pit box. How much pride do you personally take in that? Does Mr. H take in that? Alex take in that? The whole organization, that seems to be a pretty big point of emphasis. Yeah, I think last year, I mean, it was just a matter of, you know, don't be the new guy and screw it up, right? Like, good Well, good job. Going. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I would say if there was any pressure, it was definitely more so last year than this year. Uh, but, you know, hey, the, the boss, Mr. H loves sitting on the front row of that thing and loves sitting on the pole. Um, he, he wants that Daytona 500 trophy. And part of that, if you go down there and sit on the pole, then you have to put yourself in harm's way for for track position for the start of the 500, which is uh, which is really nice. It, you know, you get to sleep Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday night. It seems a little bit better um, knowing that you've got that at least that track position to start, and you can try to control the race. But you know, the, the super speedway races. I mean, they very rarely. I mean, maybe some more so with the next gen car. You, you can get up there and stay up there in the entire race, but through pit cycles and the way that that's worked, you know, I don't know that your starting track position is what drives the race, but it certainly, you know, can drive for a good chain of events, right? Like you, you sit up front and you get a better shot at getting, starting at the track position, you've got better shot at stage points, which just, you know, accumulation of points and all that goes. I mean, that's kind of what led us into having the ability to go sit on the pole. I mean, we did really good at scoring stage points in the first, you know, several races. So all that comes into play. Um, but that, you know, the, the pole front row, um, everybody here has tons of energy around this race. Um, everyone at HMS and, and they love it. So, you know, we're going to go, we're going to do our work and, you know, that 500 trophies high up on the list, you know, and, and we definitely want to see what we can do in qualifying as well. I don't know what's more valuable, the track position or the sleep that you're able to get if you don't need to worry about crashing your car in the duels, especially with two kids at home. I know that's valuable for you. Uh, all of it. All of it. Yeah. 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 All I'll of it. That's for sure. <laughs> um, so Alex, as you know, he is a very dry humor kind of guy. Um, knowing you, how I know you through Caitlin a little bit, you seem pretty chill as well. How do you two jive? Do you guys get along well? Does he rib you? Do you rib him? What's the vibe like between you two? <laughs> He's definitely a little more drier than I am since humor wise, but um, I, I think we both have similar personalities from the stance of, you know, if he's not giving you a hard time or I'm not giving him a hard time, then something's up. You got to worry about that. So I think, I think it's equal, you know, equal level. And, and you, if you ever listen to the radio, even in the race, we, we try to keep it pretty chill. If, if there's something one of us can slip in at a time to, you know, kind of set the tone for what we've got going, we will, but um, you know, the relationship with him and, and his attitude towards, you know, towards racing and, and honestly towards me and the entire team, everything we had to deal with last year. I mean, I don't, you know, it couldn't be any better. I, we knew you know, we could get beat down every week and, and go to the track and, and we showed up the next week. It didn't matter what happened the week before. Like our plan was, you know, we were going to go try to run up front and, and had our sights set on that. So, um, you know, I don't, looking back on it now, I think it's, uh, you know, what doesn't, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? So, um, hopefully we've got that one behind us and then we can just work on the getting stronger part now. But yeah, I think, uh, he's been fun to work with. I, I definitely enjoyed uh, the time that we had last year. Yeah. I feel like, you know, growing up, I listened to Matt Kenseth's dry humor a lot. I feel like Alex has some of that. Um, and you know, when Alex was working with Greg Ives, who I know, you know, obviously still has a presence at Hendrick Motorsports, he really tried to get Greg to come out of his shell a little bit and to try to show a little bit of personality. I see him trying with you. He hasn't gotten there fully, but I think he will in due time. So 
you know, I, I like that relationship that you guys have. Um, I actually talked to one of your former drivers earlier today, and I'm mad at myself because I meant to ask him what I should ask you, try to get you on something fun. But I talked to Michael, Michael McDowell, and yep. he seems to have taught you a lot. Um, what did you learn from working with him and front row in your first stint as a Cup Series crew chief? Because, you know, we'll get into it here, but obviously you'd been in Cup for a long time up until that point, but you hadn't been the top dog. You hadn't been the guy who's actually making the pit calls every single race. So what did you learn with that experience that you had at the 34? Hey, Michael, you know, I've been a car chief for a really long time, and, and Michael called me. I mean, Michael's the one that, that reached out about, you know, opportunity over there and working with him. And, and honestly, I've been with you know, that group of guys on the 19 through the 78 for so many years. Um, you know, I, I certainly wanted to go crew chief one day, but I, I kind of always picture that, like, maybe one day when Truex retires, that, that's when I'll make the next step, just because I've been, you know, so so close to those guys in that group. That was my team and, and how it was. And, and really, um, it, it just kind of came down to a, a timing in life where it felt like it made a lot of sense. And, you know, with the new car and everything coming in, um, you know, felt less likely to be behind the big teams at the time. And, and, and really thought that I was going to be working with Michael for a while. Um, and, but I think just from, you know, day one, I went and met him for coffee or lunch or something. And, and we chatted about what we were talking about and it was kind of all in from that moment. Right. And, and absolutely with Alex too. I mean, we, you know, we, you got to, the guy that, that you're calling the shots for has to be behind you to be successful, right? Like you can't, he has to know that whatever choices you're going to make, he's going to go do his best to, to get it done regardless of what his opinion is of it. And, you know, I, I think um, that's, that's probably the first thing that Michael taught me. And, and, and really, you know, Michael had been around the sport long enough as a veteran. I think for my first year as a crew chief, that, that was a good thing, right? Like he, on, the, on maybe some of the things that, you know, were new and fresh to me, you know, it, he had enough experience in it to, to where we kind of complimented each other. So, um, but I think it was good. We were, it's very, it's a very unique scenario to go, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't work for, I was only with JGR for a few years to go from that size company to front row where, you know, we're fighting, you know, over practice tires and how, how we're going to, upgrades we're going to make to the cars based on, you know, tighter funding than kind of what I had raced with in years. Um, you, you go through all that stuff with the driver, you know, you're like, Hey, we're, you know, where are we going to be good at? Where are we going to hedge our bets? Where are we going to put all in? So, um, you know, that was something that was definitely a unique year. I, I, and I enjoyed it, enjoyed it with Michael. Um, and that, you know, I, I don't, I don't think going to that first year with a guy that hadn't been in the series for, for as long as he had, um, you know, could have, could have been a lot more, more, a lot more difficult without doing it that way for sure. So that opportunity obviously led you to where you are now with the 48 and Alex and Hendrick Motorsports. What was your reaction when you either got the call or whoever it was reached out to you and wanted to pursue you for an opportunity to run at Hendrick Motorsports? Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how you get that all and not, not be excited. You know, I, I didn't really talk to, to chat a lot. Um, prior to it really me really knowing that it was an opportunity or the opportunity and and really got to know him really well and you know started to talk to Alex a fair bit and and with both of our backgrounds just growing up and you know our interests in dirt racing and all, all the things open wheel stuff that was super easy right like and I didn't I didn't really know him much before but 
um, that that was a, a easy kind of plug and play from our personalities and interests and all those things. Um, and I'd honestly hope, you know, when I moved to front row, I knew that was taking a big risk, right? And, and I'd hope that later on down the line, I'd have an opportunity to, to get a shot back with, with a big company again and somewhere that we could go compete weekly for wins and championships, which is um, why, why I moved here to Texas when I was a kid. You know, I win cup championships as a crew chief and um, it just happened. The opportunity lined up and presented itself, you know, harder than I thought it would. And, and super fortunate um, that, you know, Mr. H and, you know, Gordon and Chad and Alex and all those guys uh, took, a, took a chance on me, right? Like they, they brought me in um, after only a year of having that under my belt and, and believing in, in what I could bring to the table to, to compete at the level that we can. So um, yeah, that, that was, that was a big deal. I don't, you know, I, Caitlin and I talk about it a lot when certain things in your careers happen, you kind of, it's hard to, even while you're living it, it, you don't really think about it in that context, right? It's just, it's what's happening now. And, um, you know, you look back 10, 15, 20 years ago with something that didn't seem tangible, tangible and here we are now. So yeah. it's definitely, uh, it's definitely really cool. So you mentioned before Furniture Row, you obviously moved to North Carolina from Texas. I think you got your first job with what was then Evernham back in 2006 or so. I figured, you know, the, the reason that you moved from Texas to North Carolina was to pursue a career, not necessarily driving as you did, but working on a race team. You obviously have been pretty successful at that. But when you got to Evernham in, in 06, you were what, 18, 19 years old, something like that? You were youngin'. Uh, you were pretty green, pretty fresh. What was it like? Working for Ray, I'm sure you weren't interacting with him on a day-to-day basis necessarily, but working for a big NASCAR race team like that under the age of 20 years old and just the amount of learning that you had to go through in such a short period of time. I feel like every kind of every step of the way was unique for me. Um, I got in the door in the engine shop, actually, um, right down the street from where we're at now uh, and worked a couple of years there. I grew up in my dad's mechanic um automotive shop and his engine machine shop and stuff. So I had a little bit of background and, and got in the door tearing down engines and then kind of worked up through sub assembly and stuff in, in a couple of years. And I'd started to do, you know, on the side and all my spare time because I was shop based, uh, a lot of short track stuff, just kind of what I did growing up. And I would go crew chief guys, cars, and we'd build cars and had a couple of buddies. And, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed the car side. And also, you know, there's 70 people at the engine shop and like four engine builders. So I was like, if my math's right, in about 275 years, I might be able to build an engine here. So, <laughs> um, you know, just from opportunity and interest, uh, you know, I, I'd asked to move the chassis shop. And, and that, that's where it really, um, where it changed for me. I, I got plugged into the R&D team at Abraham chassis shop and um, in the car shop up in Statesville. And man, it was just, you know, the R&D team, team was kind of like a mix of like older crew chiefs that weren't traveling full time. We, we were testing every week, sometimes multiple times per week. You know, the whole, like some of the guys, we when they started the fourth team, we ran the fourth team with some of the R&D team. Well, I had like this mix of some of the older mechanics that, you know, and some younger guys that got plugged into train and I got to do everything. Like we go on the tests and I mean, when at night, when, when we were done with the test cars, like I could help 
you know, the car chief set up the cars and and I just kind of learned everything and all those guys. And I just got plugged in with, with a really decent group of guys at the time that, you know, weren't annoyed by a 20 year old kid, you know, running around with more energy than brains at the time. And, um, you know, but I, I literally got got to do everything from all that testing for, for a couple of years there to the point where, you know, if the teams needed somebody to plug in on the weekends that were out or they had somebody go down or just needed extra hand back before the roster limitations, I would, go to the track on, on the weekend with those guys and it kind of accelerated my opportunities in in the sport and and once the once the position opened up at furniture row racing once everham shut down um and i kind of took a chance to go out there and and, and spend a couple years in the shop before i became car chief so um it just really the group of individuals that i was around at, at very pivotal pivotal points in my career i mean i i left the engine shop and like a month later they laid half the engine shop up off because things changed. And I got to Everham two years really before it shut down and swapped to Ford and, and crunched down. Like it was just literally the timing, you know? Um, and, and I moved, you know, I moved to North Carolina planning to, you know, finish engineering degree. So I should have been in school for another two or three years prior to moving out there. And then once I got hired at Everham, I just never really finished school. And, you know, so my point is that I don't, I, I've thought about it a lot. Like, man, if I just stayed in school, where, where would I be and how would that path have gone? And you just, you, you don't plug into the same people at the same time. Right. And learn the same thing. So um, I think there certainly could have been benefits either way, but um, just, yeah, really, really good people along the way, good mentors. Um, you know, I felt like at a young age doing all that, like I, I was, I love finding, you know, the guy that had been doing it the longest, that was the best. And I would just stand there and spend all the time right behind him on, on what I needed to do. And let me let him tell me what I was screwing up if I was doing something wrong. And yeah. um, def, definitely owe a lot of that to, to those guys that I spent a lot of time with. You mentioned the move to Furniture Row out in Denver, Colorado. That obviously is a stark departure from how things are run in the Charlotte area. It had to be a hell of a time. Not only was Barney Visser your boss – but Cole Pern was the crew chief. I know you worked with the outlaw, Kurt Busch, for a little bit, and you won a championship with MTJ in 2017. I know it's hard, but, I mean, can you sum up the time that you had in Denver for that race team before they closed their doors? Because all the stories I always hear from everybody, whether it's Cole, you, Martin, anybody, they all just have such fond memories of that time. Yeah, I, my one of my favorite stories to tell that that I think a lot of people forget about furniture. Like people know the wins and the championships and all the things. And I moved out there in 2010, and I think uh, I moved out there middle of January, and I was there I don't know February and March, and it was somewhere around like a Texas Phoenix race, the spring race, um, and I'd had like my first day off. And I mean, I was working seven days a week, all hours to the night. I finally moved, like it was a Saturday. I moved into an apartment. Finally, <laughs> I'd been living in a hotel since I'd moved there. And, uh, I got moved in an apartment and a couple of guys in the shop were like, Oh man, we got to go check out the ski slopes. And I had not, I'd skied like once in my life before. I'm like, well, I'm living in Colorado. I got to figure this out. Right. So we go up and, um, <laughs> we're on, we're like halfway through the day and shop foreman called me. He's like, Hey man, what are you doing? Like, on a, on a lift, ski lift right now. <laughs> What's up? He's like, we got to turn that car around from today. We're going to take it next week. And I'm like, we finished like 
30th, three laps down under green with no issues. He's like, I know, but it's the best one we got. I'm like, all right, I could be there in an hour and a half. But, oh, you know, I, that's my favorite story because 30th was a good day when I started there. And man, we, and we get our teeth kicked in the dirt a lot of days. And, um, you know, as, as things evolved and, you know, I, I was with a few different crew chiefs there and, and, and different individuals along the way. And we just slowly started to trickle in little bit better people here and there and you know barney kept up in the game with the technical alliances i mean i wasn't there long and, and we aligned with rcr which was a big step in performance um and, and we just kept trickling in better people over the years that, that, as we could and, and a lot of racers you know guys that um you know did the, the job was getting it done right and to the best of our ability and, and there was nothing else and, and they wouldn't stop until then and so you know you, you take 2010 really rough kind of getting going year for myself. And, you know, that's the same year Cole started, um, same year P Rondo started like a lot of, there was a lot of us, a bulk of us that kind of started that year as I think they were coming back off of a, a partial schedule. And, um, you fast forward to 2011, we went to the Southern 500, you know, heads up with some of the best guys and, um, in a, you know, strategy, but we put Regan on the front row and, and he went and did it. And, um, to the, to evolution of, you know, bringing Kurt on and then Truex and, becoming a crew chief and, and all those things and and i you know again all those aligned with opportunities that i had i mean i when i was there shop based i started racing local short track and you know i was all in running late models doing my thing and um you know todd barry was our crew chief at the time and cole cole i had worked with for several years at furniture row already and they gave me the opportunity to be to be a car chief i had to go to the one for a guy and um, they asked me to do it. And, and without that, at that time, at a, at a very young age, I mean, at, at the point where, you know, I hadn't traveled full time ever really. And they gave me the opportunity to do that. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of guys my age doing that at the time in the sport. So all because of those guys gave me the opportunity. And then, you know, what we continued to build over the years um, led to, you know, all the, all the wins that everybody knows and the championships, but man, just, uh, you know, from, guys that hung bodies in that shop to, you know, Arnie to everybody that put everything they did in that sport. You know, I, I felt like I was there, I was there for nine years and the ev evolution of that place from when I got there. And when I got there with several guys that got there at the same time, just like what to see that, what it became, you know, the shot to win the championship on the last race that we had there, right. in 18 and, and finished second. I mean, we, we had a lot of, really really cool growth through the years there and, and that was a lot of fun that's storybook stuff i still love hearing all those stories um from those days i know i only got limited time with you here and i got so much more ground to cover so i'm going to pick and choose my spots yeah. um we mentioned caitlin a little bit obviously if those don't know your wife's caitlin vincey fox broadcaster great gal so give us the story from your perspective on how you guys first met and who made the first move i want to hear it from your perspective <laughs> Um, yeah. Oh, let's see. Have you asked her this already? <laughs> I think I have. I don't know if I have on, on the record, but I think it had something to do with maybe in an inspection line when you were at Furniture Row, maybe. Yeah, I, I think, um, she definitely a couple times at the racetrack, I think, you know, it was trying to get my attention or, or definitely, you know, kind of made eye contact, but we were in Loud, New Hampshire and, um, we all ended up we were having team dinner all of our guys ended up at the same restaurant and she was there and she came up and like she you know tv in general i think she had one of her friends with her and 
they have interactions with the team anyways when they come up and ask us questions or whatever she just came up and stuck her hand out and was like hi i'm caitlin <laughs> like literally walked up to me in in a restaurant and like i'm in group of you know my 12 team guys or whatever and i was like oh hi <laughs> so and then uh yeah we spent the rest of the evening talking and getting to know a little each other a little bit and uh yeah that was that was that that's pretty much been it from from then on <laughs> love it first sight i love it um and obviously your sister too jacqueline uh been pleasure to be friends with her for a while as well i may or may not have done some intel so buckle up for these oh, if boy. i um if i were to mention a yellow go-kart to you would anything particular come to mind oh man uh, <laughs> a lot of wins uh-huh but like ended in fire and flames and that thing Flips, was so fast. Rex, yep. Rex. Forged oh, certificates, I, the whole nine, it, man. <laughs> I was, man, when I raced that thing, I think I was probably 11, maybe 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there. And I was a pretty big kid for my age at the time. And um, I'd be racing against these little, little bitty kids and uh, whatever age bracket I was in at the time. And man, I would flip those things and it would bend the car and, <laughs> We would straighten it. We'd have it straightened. I mean, probably after the third or fourth time, catch on fire. But I mean, we we win all the time too. So my dad yeah. finally was like, "Man, we've straightened this thing too many times. It's got to go." But uh, it was a uh, that was that was the first one, man. That was a uh, that was my first first driving gig there, yellow go kart. Yep. And she said you flipped it multiple times. To your point, it caught on fire oh. multiple times. And did the whatever sanctioning body that you were racing under? Did they have to change like? rules and regulations and where you could and couldn't sit because of all these oh, yeah. wrecks and fires and stuff well you know i'm gonna I'm get in a full racer mode on you here this was a heck of a battle for the lead I'm sure came out we came up on a lap car <laughs> i went to the top to go around first and second i was running third and everybody moved up i caught somebody's right rear and i ended up over the fence um i think i landed almost against the ambulance that was parked somewhere off turn four which was convenient you know, Four, yeah, it was convenient. The paramedics were already there, but yeah, um, yeah that was uh, that was a new rule moment for for me early in life, I guess. <laughs> and that was when you were eleven, and you still have vivid memories of it. You racers are oh yeah, breed. I swear. You you remember all the ones you should have won. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm sure you do. Um, I also heard that you may or may not have forged your age a little bit to compete in a certain division. Never hurt nobody, right? Oh yeah, a couple divisions. Yeah, we. So what happened was, I think when I was, I think I was like 14 running dirt stock cars and started moving around and like the track I ran at initially, there was no age. I mean, I think the age limit was maybe 14. Um, and so we would just go start to bounce around some different dirt tracks around Texas and I'd get out on the front stretch, race up one. They'd be like, how old are you? 16. <laughs> so <laughs> the next year, I mean, we knew we got to the places, but they never asked for driver's licenses or anything there. I mean, you know, just pull up and pay your pit pass. They're happy to have you there. So um, the next year I ran asphalt trucks, which was a little bit more of a ser serious touring series. Yeah. But once again, never asked for a driver's license. And finally, the second year I ran there, you know, I think I was on the front stretch once and they're like, how old are you? 16. And they were like, wait, wait a second. You just raced last year. At that point it was too late. I was like, here's my license if you need it now. But um, yeah, we got away with it back in the day. And you know, you gotta remember there's no social media, no anything. It was hard exactly. to find things out about people back then. So yeah. it was much different. And now it makes for a good story. Cause everybody that was there that day could say that they saw cup series crew chief, Blake Harris forge his birth certificate. It's phenomenal. It's a great story. Well, I don't think I had a forged birth certificate. I don't. I don't think they asked for that stuff back then. You just—it was just—it was relatively chill. 
Yeah, you just paid your registration, showed up, raced, everybody was fine. <laughs> so before you were a crew chief in Cup, how were you as a crew chief for your sister? I mean, I think I, I probably should take credit for a lot of her wins, but um, I'll give you I wasn't half around. Credit. Yeah, I wasn't around for some of them. You know, I, I moved to North Carolina. She's five years younger than me, so she raced another six, seven years probably. Uh, but man, we <clears throat> we wrenched everything. We we raced a lot um, as kids. My dad raced. She raced. Um, you know, when I was racing go-karts, we were working on her stuff too. She started racing at the same time and, and obviously younger classes and, um, and kind of as we I'm trying to think as I ran like stock cars and trucks and late models and stuff, she was in quarter midgets and, and kind of had just transitioned maybe into like legend cars and stuff when I moved away. So I, I actually hate that. Uh, I flew back for one late model race. I got to help out for one weekend with her. Um, but you know, outside of that, I, I wish I could have been around for a little more of that. I think it would have been a lot of fun, but um, definitely those early days. There's a, a lot of crew chiefing for her, for sure. Yeah. She, she, uh, reminisced fondly on that one time. I think it was when you were with Everham, you flew back and surprised her and the whole fam for, uh, for one of her races. So that was cool. How was your recent team bowling bonding event? Who's the best bowler on the 48 squad? Not Blake. I can tell you that <laughs> it was, uh, it was a rough go. We had, uh, we had everybody show up. We only played a couple of games, but, um, I think, Car chief Ty did a pretty good job. Um, not Blake, also not Alex. I'll throw that out there. Okay. Not uh, not who, not who you want as your bowling partner. If you're well, on probably because he had to put on bowling shoes and he couldn't wear his Vans, so he was all out of you weather. Know, it it might have been the shoes. Yeah. I'll have to check with him on that. He, I don't know. I think he was watching Belusha too in the middle of all that. So I'm gonna, mm. I'm gonna question his concentration level during the bowling event. But uh, <laughs> um, our Jackman did really well too. Uh, Alan Holman, he was he was a beast with that thing. I don't, I mean, he never like just palm the ball halfway down the as nuts. Oh, he's he's a, he's an animal. He did a <laughs> yeah, between him and Ty. I think they were the top scorers for sure. Okay, um, I saw your birthday dinner was hibachi at your house. That's like yeah. the most badass thing I've ever heard. Um, important question though: Are you a yum yum sauce guy or a ginger sauce guy? Uh, probably yum yum sauce. Yep. Yeah, I'm double yeah. yum yum all the way. Yeah, the, the hibachi was on point. That was uh, it was good with unique. She's really good at parties. Really good at throwing parties. Yeah. Um, but really good with coming up with unique, unique things. That one, I was like, wow, I didn't even know that that was a thing. But well, I was, was like awesome. looking at her Instagram, great. and I was like, this is a custom menu. Like, did you rent out a plate? And I was like, no, it's in your house. Like. Wow, that's the, the hibachi chef was on like our back deck blowing fire at one point out of his mouth. I was like, What is happening? I that mean, sounds safe great. in your home, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was like a little away from most flammable yeah, things, fine. so it was fine. <laughs> that's fine. Um, as long as you didn't do that at the at your new cabin, which is what in Black Mountain, I think that thing yeah, looks yeah. awesome too. I might hit you guys up for a friends and family discount if I ever find myself that way, but that looks <laughs> very immaculate. I gotta have to check that out, yeah. I mean. I'm sure you've seen some of the photos. That's our, our second one we're getting close to being done with. Um, I say we as in Caitlin now because our season started and it's all on her. But she, did, she does an amazing job with, with all the, the decorations and, and all the design. She does all that. I mean, we go in and we found a couple places and, and do some quick kind of renovations. And um, we've stayed in, in this new one a lot. You know, our one of our favorite vacation spots is mountains. And, and we went to, I think we went to Colorado back in the off weekend in, in June or July, whenever that was. And we got to spend a lot of time up, you know, in Chimney Rock, Lake Lure area this winter with our kids. And 
um, which is the primary reason why why we got those. But she does uh, she does a great job, and, and she's she's got a lot on her plate to manage all that while uh, I'm out playing with race cars. But she uh, she definitely does a nice job of those. Power couple, I love it. Um, all right, last thing, I'll bring it back to the on track competition to end things here. Obviously, you guys want to win a race or two or three or four or whatever, and you want to make the playoffs. That that's a given. You're a Hendrick Motorsports team. That's the expectation. Besides that, do you and Alex or even Chad, Jeff, Mr. H, whoever, do you guys sit down as a team and go over what you think realistic goals are for the year, or do they kind of develop as the season progresses? I think they develop as the season progresses. You know, I think, you know, Alex over his career has had opportunity to put himself, you know, up inside the the top eight, and, and that's – certainly doable um and from there that round once you get in the round of eight i mean you've got to be about perfect in those last few races to get into the championship four or just win one and you know we we put a lot of effort in those races in the playoffs especially the ones that we see in the spring because of that and um but no i don't i don't know that we nail down like all right guys you know we're going to make the round of eight period what we're going to do i mean we know that we're expected to make the playoffs and um want to win championships. The boss wants to win the championship, especially this year with the 40th anniversary. So um, super important to, to everybody, right? Like Chevy, Ally, everybody at HMS, everybody that puts everything into what we have, um, you know, we're here to win races and championships, period. So does that mean if we don't go win the championship every year that, that that's the expectation for every team? I don't think that changes. I mean, I, the, you know, that's, that's what we're out to do. So for us right now, we've got a crawl before we walk, right? We we need to win a race. We didn't do that last year. We need to do that, eliminate, you know, any worry and and start start heading off into to getting some strength going into the playoffs. Well, I got no doubt you guys will do so. You're more than capable. You got a great guy at the helm of your race car and you got a great team as well. The fact that you have somebody on your team that bowls without putting his fingers in the ball just scares me. So competition should be scared too. Uh, I appreciate it, Blake. This has been fun, man. Uh, thank you for having some fun with me. And I think I might call you Hibachi Harris from now on, as long as you Hibachi Harris. Uh, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you guys are hot during the season, I kind of have to. That 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 just yeah. writes itself. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but if you don't sign off on it, I won't. So don't worry about it. By the way, <laughs> hope you enjoyed. I dressed for the occasion with some ally purple. So do it right. I like it. I like it. Thank you. And we are back. What an interesting guy. What a smart guy, too. I mean, you talk about somebody who knows his stuff inside and out. Engineer mind, driver mind, one of the smartest minds in the NASCAR garage right now. That is Blake Harris. So, Blake, very much appreciate your time, sir. Caitlin, thank you for some intel. Jacqueline, thank you for some intel. And Autumn of Hendrick Motorsports, thank you for helping coordinate that conversation as always my friend much much appreciated that'll do it for this episode 214 of victory lane 2.0 post daytona and if you like what you heard again please do me a favor leave a rating and a review you can do that on apple i'm pretty sure you can do that on some other podcasting apps now too so wherever you listen please spread the word spread the gospel and if you'd like me to do anything different if you'd like me to talk to somebody in particular Tweet me, beat me, X me. You know how to reach me. Let me know. Get in touch at Davy Center and on Instagram at Davy Siegel as well. 
Appreciate you guys spending some of your time here with us. Thank you again to Blake Harris for joining us this week. And we'll be back next week after Atlanta for a whole new guest and a whole new episode in the world of NASCAR. Looking forward to that. I hope you are too. Enjoy Atlanta in the meantime, and we will talk to you next week. See you later, party people.